1: Oh, you beauty. Look at that. I'm out walking in the woods by my house in northern Washington State, and I've just spotted one of my favourite things in the forest. Okay, this is really special. A fresh deposit of scat. In this case, deer droppings. These ones are cute little things. They look like a little pile of mini milk duds probably won't taste these ones even though I do love this stuff though. I do. No shame in that. I have done for years. Excrement, feces, scat, poop, call it what you will. When you're a wildlife guy, this stuff is a gold mine of information. There's even a technical term for the study of it, scatology. And this forest that I'm in has more than just deer droppings. I'm finding evidence of all kinds of animals. On the same trail where I find the milk duds, I notice a pile of something a bit bigger, this time from a carnivore. This is about as thick as my index finger, and it is a coyote's gat. And then I discover something very special. That's unbelievable. There's a a scrape here. All the forest has been raked up, and... um, into a little pile a few inches high and there's a massive pile of fresh cougar scat right on the top of it. And it's it's about what about an inch in diameter, maybe more, inch and a quarter full of fur and bones. And it's right on this deer trail where he would have probably been looking for dinner. In the early days, scat science was pretty basic. In my work with bears, a pile of poo could tell me an animal was there, obviously, and sometimes what the animal had eaten. I have entire photo albums of bear scat, and every picture tells a story of what went in the other end. Blueberries, salmon bones, clamshells, and once even a hot dog label. But these days, there's a lot more to it. The study of SCAT has become a whole science. This is some serious... Well, you get it. (laughs) Today, animal waste goes way beyond an interesting discovery on an afternoon hike or a few details about what an animal was eating. Wildlife biologists have come up with amazing ways to use SCAT in their research, and it's changing the way they do this work.
2: One of the most beneficial aspects of working with non-invasive methods like SCAT is that in fact we are not capturing or directly harassing or handling or stressing the animals.
1: SCAT has the power to open doors of understanding and lets us get a peek into the health and lives of wildlife.
0: SCAT is the most accessible animal product in nature and because so many products in the body are eliminated through SCAT, it provides this treasure trove of information about the animal's health, its reproductive status, um, the the other environmental pressures that it's under and um, there's really nothing else like it.
1: There really is nothing else like it. Today, we'll take a look at three different ways biologists are using SCAT to understand and protect wildlife including poop parties, a dog on a boat, and an international crime fighter. From KURW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to The Wild. today. Oh, you really? Yeah. For our first case study in scat, I present to you the otter. So
2: that was not there yesterday. Let's have a little rummage it's around. Yeah, very it's a very fishy one too.
1: I'm on the banks of the Duwamish River near Seattle with biologist Michelle Weinstein. She's a field conservation associate with Woodland Park Zoo. Michelle has brought me to this otter latrine site, and I'm pretty excited
2: if you can see that but that, that's all little
1: fish bones oh so it is see that? it almost looks like grasses yeah, but yeah. no
2: it's bones.
1: you know when you meet someone who has an interest in something quite unusual and you realize it's the same one you have instant soulmates that's kind of how i feel right now being with michelle we're right next to an asphalt trail and under a major flight path from seattle tacoma airport which is only about five miles away Michelle has been studying Otterscat here for the past three years. The Duwamish River starts in the pristine Cascade Mountains before emptying out into Puget Sound through the heart of the industrial district of Seattle. A lot of her work is in the less lovely section of that where the river weaves through some real nastiness. In fact, the last five miles of this river is one of the most polluted rivers in the country. For over a century, the river has been polluted by stormwater, waste and industry. In one of those industries, Boeing manufactured the B-17 bomber here during World War II. Heavy metals, cyanide and other toxins from the manufacturing seeped into the groundwater. This section of the river has been categorised as a Superfund site by the federal government, meaning the pollution is so bad it'll take decades to clean up something that's started and has to be monitored. And believe it or not, that's where this pile of otter scat comes in. Michelle calls these otters biomonitors.
2: So a biomonitor is basically a, a, something like an organism that can monitor environmental health and conditions for us in a biological way.
1: Michelle hopes to use otter scat to help monitor the level of contaminants in the Duwamish River. Otters are opportunistic eaters. They'll eat fish, crustaceans, birds, almost anything they can easily get a hold of.
2: As an organism, we can use these otters to tell us a lot about what's happening in terms of contamination of the food web below it because we can measure what's going on in their bodies. And so it's telling us a lot about the ecosystem. It's monitoring it for us in a a biological way and in a biological context.
1: Picture it this way. Some chemical gets into the river. Those pollutants seep into the sediments at the bottom of the river. Then the particles make their way into the insects that live and feed in the mud. That insect gets eaten by a fish. A nearby otter sees that tasty looking fish. Wham! Game over for the fish. But not for the contaminants. The otters are like a filter showing what's polluting the river.
2: And you get this magnification effect that the farther you are in the food chain, the more contaminants you have because you've absorbed everything that's been eaten below you.
1: So they're accumulating most of this contaminant from all the food beneath them. Exactly, exactly. The otters are like a walking, pooping test kit. What goes in one end has to eventually come out the other, contaminants included. Michelle's job is to look for those contaminants in the scat, and conveniently, groups of otters will use the same location to do their business. They're known as latrine sites, where otters gather to socialize and, well, defecate. Michelle has about 15 latrine sites she's been monitoring.
2: Ranging from that very contaminated superfund site all the way up into habitat that we consider fairly clean and pristine. And... At places in between.
1: And there is kind of a ritual that goes on at these sites. It sounds quite comical, actually.
2: When they poop, they do a little dance, so they lift their tail up high and they usually, tap you know, step on their rear feet like they're dancing and then they go.
1: Love the sound of the otter dance. I know,
2: it's, <laughs> it is kind of cute, if you're OK with the fact that they're pooping.
1: <laughs> I am. Michelle uses remote wildlife cameras at some of these latrine sites and has seen as many as 20 otters using them at the same time, all dancing around, answering the call of nature. She describes it as an otter poop party.
2: How else could you describe it except for a party?
1: Michelle crouches down to collect a sample from the shiny, fresh otter scat about 10 feet from the river. She puts on some rubber gloves grabs a cotton swab from her sampling kit, which looks like a mini toolbox, and then moves in like she's a surgeon.
2: And what I do is I take that swab and I just run it over the exterior of the scat. And that's another reason why it's really important for it to be fresh because I'm trying to collect kind of that mucusy layer that's on the outside of the scat that came from the intestine of the otter.
1: That's where most of the best samples can be found. And not surprisingly, the otters down in the Superfund site show much higher levels of pollutants than the otters further upriver. The cleanup will be slow, but the otters will be here to help monitor the trend.
2: It's probably going to be about a 20-year process. And so we thought it was a great time to get a real empirical baseline for river otters as apex predators in the system to know where they started in the very polluted system.
1: Just as Michelle is talking, something unexpected happens.
2: Oh, my goodness. Wait. Come here. They might come up.
1: Two otters run along the bank on the other side of the river, something she hardly ever sees. I, I
2: can't are so insanely lucky. Oh,
1: oh my god! I will just poop with excitement if they oh. if they <laughs> poop on a riverbank Oh, my gosh. That was totally a show for you. That was real. It's not just pollutants that can be found in SCAT. DNA hides there too, waiting to be revealed. And there's one man at the top of that game Professor Sam Wasser.
0: When my parents were alive, of course, they always used to brag about me but then they would get to the poop part and they go now what are you doing again (laughs) so
1: sam wasser is the director of the center for conservation biology at the university of washington his scat work began when he was doing his phd on wild baboons in tanzania
0: at that time you know we were we had habituated baboons we were walking with daily so when they pooped you could just see that you're just right there and we knew who it came from
1: These droppings provided a lot of good information on the health of the baboons, a whole slew of things.
0: You know, stress hormones, reproductive hormones, nutrition hormones, toxins, all tied to genetics and, you know, food availability, what they're eating. And all of that you can get from scat now and being able to do that over these large scales when you're trying to look at the impacts of humans on wildlife uh, is really a, a powerful, powerful tool.
1: While working with the baboons, Sam would see elephants in the field. It made him wonder, what if he could apply these baboon scat methods to understanding the health of African elephants, and maybe even help them?
0: But there you have a challenge because if you don't see the animal poop, then you don't know who it came from. And I realized that if we could get DNA out of the samples, that would change everything.
1: So Sam did just that. In 1997, he was on the forefront of something that was to shake up what was possible with SCAT science, a new method to extract DNA from SCAT.
0: All the cells in the body um, have the same DNA, and because the cells in the intestines are largely having to replenish themselves because they're working so hard to digest food, that means that we have uh, huge numbers of cells with DNA in fecal samples, about 10 million cells per gram.
1: This was a game changer. Now, scientists could identify and monitor not just species, but individual animals, just by analysing their waste. Sam was going to get his chance to study elephant poop. He just had to find some. Not exactly difficult when it comes to elephants.
0: A poop sample may may weigh as much as 25 pounds. Um, So easy to find.
1: Sam and his colleagues set about partnering with other universities and local governments and wildlife rangers in Africa to help collect elephant dung.
0: And so we gradually built support and we collected samples across the entire continent of Africa, which was no small challenge given that you can put five United States in Africa.
1: They now have over 3,000 poop samples from savannah elephants and forest elephants.
0: And we realized that we could map the whole continent of Africa.
1: Sam's referring to a DNA map, a DNA map of the elephants in Africa. From it, he can identify individual animals in a family and knows which region that elephant lives in. This is where Sam Wasser turns from a university biology professor to an Indiana Jones-like international crime fighter.
0: Well, actually, right now, um, I kind of work for U.S. Homeland Security Investigations.
1: We'll get into that right after the break. Hey, my name's Claire McGrain and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts. Ivory tusks are worth millions on the illegal wildlife market and Sam has joined forces with law enforcement teams to track down the elephant killers poachers. In 1979, the population of African elephants was estimated at 1.3 million.
0: Right now, it's estimated that there are 400,000 African elephants remaining in Africa, and they are killing 40,000 elephants a year for poaching.
1: These killings are an existential threat to the species. Sam is helping to catch the poachers by using his DNA map of the elephant population. When a shipment of ivory is seized, the DNA from the ivory can be matched against Sam's map. A documentary film called The Last Animals followed Sam on this work. One scene shows Sam processing a shipment of ivory found in Singapore. Workers are dumping big buckets full of elephant tusks onto the ground in a large parking lot. The ivory tusks are lined up next to each other, row after row. There are thousands of them. Sam kneels down and picks up one of the smaller tusks.
0: This whole tusk weighs 0.1 kilo. I mean, why would you kill an elephant for a tenth of a kilo tusk? If you look through there, there's no ivory in here. This is ridiculous.
1: Sam estimates there could be the tusks of 10,000 elephants in this parking lot, including the tusks of very young elephants.
0: It's the hardest part for me, honestly. See all these little guys, you know, here. Here. Here.
1: When a shipment of elephant tusks like this is confiscated, Sam takes samples so that he can extract DNA from the ivory. Then he matches it against his scat DNA population map. And that way, he can identify where the elephant was poached.
0: We can get it to within 180 miles of where the elephant actually came from.
1: Now, 180 miles might seem like a lot, but when you consider the size of Africa, that's pretty high precision.
0: So we can tell the species, we can tell if it's forest or savanna elephants, and then we can tell what protected area it actually came from.
1: Officials can then trace back from the port, like the shipment confiscated in Singapore, to where the shipment came from in Africa.
0: Looks like a lot of these were bagged in Mombasa. You can see here Mombasa, Kenya. Um, Here's another from Dar Salaam.
1: Knowing the origins of the poached animals helps investigators narrow down to the potential smugglers.
0: And before we knew it, we were able to pull out the three biggest ivory cartels operating, exporting ivory out of Africa. Wow. We've been doing this since 2004, and we've analyzed over 70 large ivory seizures that, that weigh anywhere from a half a ton to, to nine tons of ivory single shipments. And we found that the vast majority, virtually 100% of the ivory was coming from just two places in Africa.
1: And the danger is very real. People trying to stop the trade in Africa, like the rangers, are often killed on the front line. In the last 10 years alone, around 1,000 of them have lost their lives. I got to ask you, do you feel safe doing this work?
0: You know, for the most part, Yes, but sometimes I get nervous. Um, I I, I don't worry about myself here in the United States. When I'm traveling abroad, um, I do, depending on the country I'm in, I, I am a bit more concerned.
1: The day I spoke with Sam, he had just received the latest seized shipment for DNA processing. It's the largest shipment Sam has ever received.
0: It was nine tons of ivory, so um, it's a very, very important shipment and it, it is connected to a number of other seizures that have been made that we've already investigated. So this one, we expect to really pro- match to a huge number of other seizures and really, really connect a much larger criminal network that we have been tracking for um, uh, the past few years now and, and hopefully are going to bring down very soon.
1: And to think, all this work is possible because of the DNA information Sam was able to unlock in elephant dung. Makes you look differently at a pile of poop, doesn't it? We turn to orcas, killer whales, the emblem of the Pacific Northwest in the waters of Washington State and British Columbia. But the population of this emblem... Is crashing.
0: They're going to be gone before long. There are only 72 uh, resident killer whales left, southern resident killer whales left in Washington state.
1: But Sam's team in the San Juan Islands is hoping that killer whale scat will hold the answer to saving these whales. And they found a pretty novel way of finding it. And you might be thinking, because I know I was, how do you find poop in the sea? The solution is a highly sensitive nose. That's the sound of Eber, the whale dog.
0: And so the question is, how did the dog do it? Does it jump in the water? No.
1: Orcus actually floats right at the surface of the water for about 30 minutes. So if the killer whales are in the area, the team has to act quickly.
0: Today's the 8th of May and we're just outside of Snug Harbor uh, getting ready to do a focal follow on a group of transients, a family called the T-101s.
1: This is Deborah Giles. She's a PhD researcher who works with Sam on the Orcas project, and she's Eva's proud handler.
0: And we've got Eva here on the bow. Uh, we're just coming in to uh, get into position here and uh, operate the vessel downwind and several hundred meters away from the um, back end of these whales, and hopefully they'll leave us a sample. So our dog is riding on the bow of the boat, and it might be laying down asleep, and you can kind of see one nostril kind of flaring and the other one flaring alternately. She's just uh, facing into the wind and uh, hasn't smelled any fecal sample yet. But as soon as you hit the scent cone that is emanating off of that scat sample, the dog is up and way over the bow.
2: We're looking for a change of behavior, and as
0: soon as we see that, we'll turn into the wind.
1: The dog jumps to action, runs up to the bow, nose in the air, and points in the direction of the floating scat. The captain swings the wheel toward the target, cruises up alongside, and a researcher is ready with a cup on the end of a long pole. And essentially,
0: you just go to the scat you you put it slightly under the water just like you do with a cup when you're playing in the tub as a little kid and you put it under the water and the water rushes in you get it right in front of the sample you get it under the water you know just a little bit and the water just floods in with the poop
1: and all the dog asks for in return as a reward for a job well done a bit of ball time
0: get it, Eva, get it. Good job.
1: and eba really loves ball time
2: good girl
1: Interestingly, the COVID-19 pandemic has opened up a rare opportunity for Giles and Eba. Noise from vessel traffic can cause stress for the whales, but recreational boating is way down because of the coronavirus. So Giles wants to look if the level of stress hormones in poop are lower during this stay-at-home period. But boat noise isn't the only reason this population is under stress and on the verge of extinction. Loss of prey, salmon is a big one, and also toxins in the water.
0: And so with the killer whale, when you have all those pressures that are impacting them, how do you partition them to figure out which pressure do you need to address first when you're trying to deal with this urgent conservation problem?
1: It's a common dilemma in conservation. Where do you start when a species faces several layered threats? For Sam and his team, the answer was clear. You start with the poop. In addition to toxins and DNA, the orca scat also reveals information about diet and nutrition levels.
0: You can see how they are trending over time and declining. And then we measure nutritional hormones in those samples so we can see whether the animals are starving
1: or not. Aside from the obvious problems with starvation from lack of salmon, one of the biggest impacts to the health of the pod is on reproduction. There have been consistently about 30 female whales in the population. They give birth about every five years or so, so they should have about six births in each year for the whole population. But since 2010, they've only been having one or two births, and in some years, the pod has had none at all.
0: We've been able to show that the whales are conceiving, but they are aborting 69% of their conceptions. And we're showing this from poop. By measuring reproductive hormones in the poop, we can reliably show that the female is pregnant. And then because they are photo ID'd and monitored daily, we can show that they did not end up giving a birth.
1: Sam and the team have been able to show that it's the lack of nutrition that is causing many of the female orcas to miscarry
0: we would also been able to compare the nutritional health of females at the same stage of gestation who took, went to term versus aborted. And you can show the ones that abort had much poorer nutritional health than the ones that successfully went to term.
1: Poor nutrition has more side effects than just low reproduction rates. It can actually cause the whales to be exposed to higher levels of pollutants. Whales bioaccumulate toxins in their fat throughout their lives. These
0: are what we call lipophilic toxins. They love fat. So they're absorbed and bioaccumulated in the fat throughout their life to huge levels. And when it's sequestered in the fat, it doesn't do so much harm to the animal. But when they starve, they metabolize their fat and they dump that into circulation. And that cumulative effect is what we believe is leading to the abortion.
1: It's a cruel double punch. Starvation leads to toxins being released from their own fat, which just makes the whales even more sick. It's hard to stay optimistic when it seems like such a bleak prognosis for the orca, but Sam says that their scat will give us the answer on how best to help them.
0: Boat traffic is a problem, toxins a problem, but if you can keep the fish levels high then the impacts of the boats will be markedly reduced and you will keep the toxins sequestered in the fat, and so the animals will do a lot better. So we've been able to prioritize from the poop fish.
1: In other words, for the orcas, it all comes down to food. The salmon are the ultimate key to the orca's survival. Save the salmon, save the killer whale. Sam and his team work on some of the most charismatic animals on earth. The work is rewarding and he stays optimistic but there's a lot of pressure too.
0: I won't lie that this work is very stressful but what fuels me is that I really believe that we are having a tremendous impact on in all kinds of of ways and um, it just keeps me going uh, because uh, I, we've developed tools that are so incredibly powerful and the more we apply them and the more people embrace what we're doing and the more impact that we start to have, the, the more it drives me to just you know, continue forward.
1: For me, Sam has only helped my own fascination with SCAT grow even deeper. There's a lot to this stuff. It's a topic we can laugh about, that's just human nature, but it's also cutting-edge science. Science that is helping in so many ways, helping not just the species we share the planet with, but our own needs too. As we learn about the ecosystems every one of us relies on. All starting with a bit of poop in a test tube. We've got some great photos and videos of Eba the Whale Dog on our Instagram. You can check them out at The Wild Pod. I want to give a special thanks to Kate Brooks for letting us use clips from her documentary, The Last Animals. There's a link in the show notes if you'd like to watch the film. I'd also like to remember the thousands of rangers across Africa who have given their lives protecting the animals they love. The Wild is inspired not just by nature, but by people who work in it Love it. Protect it. We have more information on our website, thewildpod.org. The Wild is a production of KUOW in Seattle in partnership with my work at the Uproar Fund. Our producer is Matt Martin. Jim Gates is our editor. Our production team includes David Brown, Juan Pablo Chiquiza, April Craig, Dyer Oxley, Tio Popescu, Mariah Powell, Brendan Sweeney and Jeannie Yandel. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. I'm your host, Chris Morgan. Thanks for listening. At SoundSide, we bring you news and conversation rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, I'm Libby Denkman. I think of my job hosting SoundSide as number one. Asking tough questions of powerful people, the questions you KUOW listeners want answered. And two, bringing you a daily slice of the fascinating, confounding, and often goofy side of life in Washington State. Join me for SoundSide at noon and 8 p.m. on KUOW or anytime on the SoundSide podcast.